this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. So you're looking to sell your business? My guess is you're actually not. My guess is that you'd like to know that you could sell your business down the road, but right now you're busy building it. And if that's the case, standard operating procedures can be your secret sauce. These are the documents that you need to show your employees how to do their work. And we've just developed a new ebook. You can get it at builttosell.com slash SOP. I think you're going to like this episode. It's with a guy named Prantik Mazumdar, who built a digital marketing agency called Happy Marketer. What a great name. He describes a lot of the mechanics of selling, some of the legalese of selling, how to deal with an earnout, in particular if you run a service company, buckle up because this episode is packed with real life lessons and business insights from somebody who's been there and done that. I think you're going to really like this. He talks about something called acquisition readiness, and in particular, the four attributes Prantik looked at to make sure he was acquisition ready. So listen for that. The beginning, they use customers to finance their business as opposed to getting investment from private equity or venture capitalists. Great lesson there for folks who want to hang on to equity, which I'm sure you do. He'll also talk about how he used partners like Boston Consulting Group and Google to instantly give his company credibility. He'll talk about timing your exit and how to think through that. Again, lots to choose from in this episode, in particular, some of the sticky details around earnouts, which are a great, great wisdom here uh, that you're about to listen to from Prantik Mazumdar. Prantik Mazumdar. How did I get that? Did I get it right? Absolutely. Spot on. Thanks, John. <laughs> hit, it, hit it out of the park. Nice. Nice. Uh, Nice to meet you. It's uh, it's great. To, I've heard a little bit about your company. We did a little bit of back and forth before we got started. So it's uh, it's great to welcome you to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you for doing it. And it's a pleasure. I've been hearing a few episodes and I'm so glad we could meet and we can do this. For So for folks who who don't know Happy Marketer, describe the company that, that you started. Um, what did you guys do? Yeah, it's... It's been 12 years since we started Happy Marketer. Uh, Rachid, the original founder, and myself, we happened to go, go a long way back. So literally 20 years ago when uh, we stepped into Singapore, we met each other on day one uh, in our lives in Singapore. We were university batchmates, but our lives took uh, you know, very different parts. After college, he, he's the true blue entrepreneur. He kind of actually stuck it out. He did different things to pay the bills. So behind the, before the 12 years, there's actually a good four, five-year story where he tried his hand at various things from website design, logo building, etc. And in the parallel, I was basically, I took the safer route, to be honest. I joined the Singapore Civil Service. I worked with startups on the other side, helping facilitate their growth and internationalization. I then worked with a couple of uh, small uh, startups or SMEs in the brand marketing and digital marketing space before Rachid and I got together and we said, hey, uh, you know, I'm doing something similar. Let's join hands and build this. I guess the interesting part of the story in retrospect is both of us are not marketing trained. Both of us don't have marketing degrees. And, and I think that that worked out really well because we believe, genuinely believe that being misfits in the industry, because we came from a tech and data background, uh, albeit a bit uh, prior to data-driven marketing became the flavor of uh, you know, marketing in itself. I think that kind of helped us. So when we began, it was all about building websites, doing the analytics, driving search engine optimization, doing the tech geeky stuff, which at least marketers back then weren't doing. So we were early in the game. Uh, we were different just by design or by our background. And yeah, that's how the journey started. Long story short, uh, we'll obviously deep dive into various aspects, but pure services business uh, bootstrap, uh, our belief was always that the best money raised is money from customers. So we had mm -hmm. no debt. Uh, we had obviously no venture capital. No one was going to look at a services business. And we kept 
pivoting and experimenting. So over the 12 years of our life, we started off purely as an agency without even knowing what an agency was, like I said, because we didn't come from the marketing industry. But thereafter, we pivoted to a training company. As in, when I say pivot, we didn't completely pivot. We added that as a business unit. Training uh, was fantastic. Eventually, we set it up as a subsidiary called Future Marketer. So Happy Marketer implemented, Future Marketer trained. And then we had a, uh, a third sort of a pivot where we added uh, consulting, digital transformation, where we went beyond marketing. Then we started looking at digital as a lever to kind of transform various aspects of your business. And the common thread amongst all of this is we did this with the help of partners. So in our 12-year journey, a lot of it was on the back of or on the shoulders of giants like Google, Salesforce, Boston Consulting Group, and that was a game changer for us. So, so Google, I, I know you're yeah. one of the big, one of the big Google Analytics trainers. Uh, and and so when you when you talk about partnerships, you're you're talking about that where you you trained other SMEs on how to use Google Analytics, how to analyze their website, and you'd been certified to do that through Google. Is that right? That's how it started. Absolutely right. So. You know, Google, everyone obviously knows we, as consumers, we use Google, the search engine or Gmail, for example, but 95% of their business revenue comes from ads, right? So in our market, there are dime a dozen advertising partners. So we were one of those dime a dozen advertising partners, but the three other areas where we partnered Google and we still do till date is one is analytics, like you said. So we are one of the two uh, Google analytics, 360 resellers and partners with the largest in Singapore and Philippines. Uh, but there are two other areas. One is training. So we train people across all sorts of Google products, G Suite, SEO, SEM, uh, you know, you, you name it. And the fourth is, which is their burgeoning, their fastest growing unit right now is the Google Cloud, is how do you kind of take Google Cloud and build marketing use cases such as predictive marketing. So most of analytics is typically rear view mirror. What did my customers do? What did they read? But now sure. with Google Cloud, I can look ahead. I can predict, oh, okay, this particular customer is likely to churn. So let me give them a promo. But, you know, John's a loyal customer. Let me not waste a promo dollar. Let me uh, take him into my loyalty program. So uh, it's that entire gamut. And we happen to be their largest uh, partner in Southeast Asia for sure. Love the partnership with Google. Obviously, that gives you credibility as well, instant credibility because of the Google brand. What was the relationship with Boston Consulting Group? Yeah, so around 2015, 2016, uh, we started connecting. They reached out saying, look, we are driving a lot of digital transformation, large-scale transformation programs with family-owned businesses in Southeast Asia. Uh, now, in, you know, if you look at Asia, specifically Southeast Asia, most emerging markets typically have anywhere between five to 10 family businesses that pretty much run the country. Uh, that's the case in Indonesia, in Philippines. So it starts- Who's the media? <laughs> you know, Everything. Yeah. You know, there is a joke that you land at an airport, the airport's by them, the plane's by them, the petrol's by them, the roads are by them, right? So uh, so they were working with a very large, uh, I believe the second or third largest uh, family-owned business in the Philippines. And they said, look, we're helping this massive group uh, figure out how best to collect and centralize data. How do we leverage data across the group? How do we activate data? How do we drive marketing automation? So they said, look, whilst we're doing all of that, we need domain experts who can actually walk the talk and convert PowerPoints to profitability. Uh, so we were there, domain experts. So this is not a subcontracting deal. We struck a deal where we said, look, we need to have a seat at the table. We need to hear customers and their pain points and we'll implement. So that's how the partnership began. And it's been mega fruitful. I mean, at least for us, because... We have their brand, their credibility. We could latch onto their pricing model. Uh, it took away a huge amount of our sales costs because they were doing the heavy lifting of sales sure. and account management. We were there to understand and implement. And even for our staff, just to have the opportunity to work with a tier one consulting firm, learn the rigor of the consulting process was, you know, that part of the benefit is hard to quantify, but I think was gigantic. Prantik, I want to ask you about specifically those partnerships and how they were viewed by your ultimate acquirer, Dentsu. So let's get into that. When, when Dentsu was 
into your business and really trying to understand it. What was the reaction to learning about the Google partnership, the, the Boss Consulting Group partnership? Yeah, that's a good one. I think it added, it did two things. Firstly, I think it's probably one of the reasons why a large entity or a conglomerate like Dentsu even got to know about us. Because during that partnership, especially the, the training element of the partnership, uh, you know, by the time we got acquired, we must have trained at least, I don't know, 5,000 odd marketers in the region including staff from Denso. So, you know, they had seen us, they had experienced us, right? So they, I think the partnership definitely helped the visibility, uh, you know, pre-acquisition. But I think when it came to acquisition, it kind of helped these partnerships lend credibility. They could do some reference check as to are these guys real? Do they do their job well? Uh, And, you know, I think fundamentally, I think two other points that I would add is when they started looking at the P&L, what they also realized is, there is a tangible value that these partnerships add is the fact that a lot of our sales was happening, sales and marketing was happening through these partners. So it actually, we were able to take off those line items from our cost structure because, you know, if Google recommends us uh, anyway, there's a 50% chance of us kind of, you know, making the deal. So we realized we didn't need to have additional sales folks. So there is a, it was a huge combined benefit when Tensu looked at these. But I guess the other side of the coin that Dentsu could have looked at was if this partnership fades away, breaks up, doesn't make the transition over to Dentsu, then Happy Marketers' easy sort of funnel of new deals dries up. Did they have that conversation directly? Did they, did they put a covenant or some sort of legal uh, protection in there about that? Yeah. And, you know, fundamentally, that's a risk of any services organization, because at the end of the day, we are all about our people and our relationships. Right. Uh, So we had that conversation across the board that, you know, how many of our staff comes over? Obviously, we put our foot down saying uh, one of our biggest non-negotiables was no one gets touched, because at the end of the day, we put in a lot of heart in our business. There were people who have kind of committed five, seven, ten years. So people was one. The other is. Uh, yes, whatever was contractually agreed, obviously, we had to kind of serve those clients and partners. But I think they baked in that risk that there could be a possibility that post-acquisition, uh, these relationships don't fly. Touchwood, it hasn't happened that way. But, you know, what matters also is the fact that if you just, under the hood, I think we've got to look at the structure of the acquisition. So the, the entity that was really interested in buying us is a Dentsu subsidiary uh, called Merkel. Which is you know which is out of which is started thirty years out of Baltimore. So if you look at the Dentsu story, the reason we were of interest to them is because Dentsu is a hundred and twenty year old you know ad agency network. It's the only network that went east to west. It was a creative powerhouse which acquired Aegis, the media company in UK in twenty twelve, and then they went to the US to acquire Merkle. Now Merkle is more like an Accenture than a ad agency. Uh, so, in fact, you know, when we connected with Merkel, it felt like we were mini Merkel because they were data driven, very much into analytics, CRM loyalty, and they are huge partners. They have a huge partner ecosystem with Google, Salesforce, Adobe. So when they looked at it, they were like, wow, this seems like a great, there, there are a lot of parallels. You know, this is probably mini Merkel in Southeast Asia. Uh, and that helped us as well, because we knew that given the way Merkel manages Alliance partners, we knew that this would be a good fit because they would understand how this business model works. So I think Dentsu got a lot of comfort just looking at the parallels between Merkel globally and Happy Marketer in Southeast Asia. Interesting. So let's get into the actual acquisition itself since we're there. How big did you get your company before you wanted to sell, like in terms of number of employees or whatever proxy you want to use for size. Yeah. So I think, you know, we were, to be honest, when we, Rachit and I started the business, the intention was never to sell, uh, right? Our intention or our, you know, we idealized services business that scaled to billion dollars. So both of us having grown up in India, Indonesia, Singapore, you know, back in the nineties or early noughts, we always looked up to IT services companies like the Tata's, the Bipro's, the uh, Cap Gemini's, etc. So, you know, we actually had a business plan which, you know, said 
over 30 years, can we get to a billion dollars, right? That was the original game. But in 2017, 2018, we got approached, we got connected uh, with a gentleman called Ted Gray, uh, who was leading Merkle in APAC. So that's how the acquisition conversation got seeded, because when we met Bray, he was very open. He said, look, I'm here to grow Merkle through acquisition because no one knows Merkle. There is no Merkle. So he had picked up a company in India, a couple of deals in Australia, and he was very, very clear that he wanted to work with Happy Marketer in Southeast Asia. So that's how the conversation started. But it took us a while for us to get convinced that we are acquisition ready. And this is something I would want to tell the audience that it's important to be acquisition ready and not just sell just because someone approaches. Because, you know, we've had, we've, we've kind of uh, fielded acquisition offers uh, since 2013, 2014. So when we looked at the market, we realized that most of the successful deals or most large deals happened when agencies were, you know, agencies had crossed about $5 million in this region. Uh, so I think in the revenue? first threshold in revenue, that's right, in revenue. So the threshold that we wanted to cross was uh, at least $5 million in, you know, billings and revenue. So we, when we uh, decided that, you know, I think um, that we want to kind of go down this path, we were, uh, we were, you know, inching towards that double digit in terms of revenue. And in terms of staff... Sorry, what do you mean about, by double digit? It's about, you know, double digit in millions, about, you know, nine to $10 million range. So we That's wanted okay. to hit that. Yeah, uh, we wanted to hit that in this part of the world. Uh, which again is uh, is rare because uh, most agencies, if I look, typically again in Singapore, uh, I think I would say five to six million is a sweet spot. Is a time when founders start either looking at new founders to take the business ahead or start looking at acquisition offers. But we wanted to stretch that a bit. Uh, next was about staff. So at the point of acquisition, we were fifty-five people, and uh, it was. I think we were, we, as a business, we were structured with about half of those folks in uh, India. That's where our delivery center always has been. And the remaining others were in Singapore and Southeast Asia. Uh, so 50 plus was a good size to be at uh, in terms of a you know, fairly decent org size that could support uh, a post-acquisition business. So that's where we wanted to get at, uh, John, you know, in terms of just being ready. Uh, so we wanted to have good partnerships. We wanted to have uh, obviously a strong pipeline. We wanted to have a near double digit revenue business and about 50 plus people. Got it. Partnerships pipeline, 10 million plus and 50 people. That was sort of the, your definition for acquisition ready. Yeah. Got it. That's super helpful. And in terms of the equity partners, it, Rashid, it, it, it was your partner uh, and original founder. And then uh, anyone else at the table on the equity side or just the two of you? No, that's a good one. So, you know, uh, at, so prior to the acquisition conversation, uh, it was 60, 40 Rachit and me. Uh, but there are two other partners in the business, Avdesh and Sanchit, uh, who have been with us for a long time. So Sanchit has been there for a, you know, for a decade. Avdesh has been there for about five, seven years. Uh, and if the acquisition had not happened, they were on path to equity anyway. Uh, but as we kind of approach the acquisition conversation, uh, we decided it's only fair that, you know, we have the equity trans transition as well. So prior to acquisition, uh, you know, as we prepared the deal structure, uh, we kind of brought them onto the equity structure as well uh, so that they have a skin in the game because, you know, in a services business, there is a earnout component. So we wanted to ensure that Sanchit and Avdesh are heavily incentivized to kind of take the journey forward. And it's worked out pretty well. Today, Sanchit's the, we've transitioned fairly well. Sanchit's the uh, current CEO of Happy Marketer. Uh, Avdesh is the chief operating officer. So Rachid and I have kind of, over the years, passed on the baton to Sanchit and Avdesh. Uh, yeah. Fantastic, fantastic. What was Ted's uh, posture when he first approached you? So he was pretty candid. You know, he kind of said, you know, I'm looking to acquire companies. You guys look like a good one. I mean, where did it go from there? Yeah, uh, over a couple of sangrias, he made it very clear that not only did, did he was he here to acquire, he wanted to acquire us specifically. But I think what I really appreciated about <clears throat> Ted was two things. I think A, the upfront candor, B, a slower approach. He was very quick to get to the point, but he said, look, I understand these things take time. Uh, 
And to be honest, year one was a lot about Rachit, me and the team sleeping over the idea. We were not acquisition ready. We were just not even emotionally sure that we wanted to go down this path since we had larger ambitions. And Ted you just said that. year one, and a lot of people said, wait, it takes more than a year to sell a company? Are you kidding me? I thought it was like weeks or months. Year one of your courting by Ted you're talking about. This, it, that, that's the, that's how many the years total this. was the courting? That's the name of this episode, year one of the courting with Ted Ray. Uh, it, it took us two years uh, of right wow. from courting to signing the deal on Feb 19th or Feb 20th, uh, 2019. Uh, yeah. So to be honest, you know, it could take, it could take a month to three months, but I would tell you this, that I think, you know, one of the biggest, and this may sound like a philosophical cliche, but one of the biggest lessons we learned is the best time to sell is when you don't have to, or don't want to sell. So sure. I think if you don't want to sell time is on your hand, you can shop around because, you know, this is, this is your, this is the founder's baby. You've put in heart, sweat, blood, mortgage, everything into it. Right. So you want to get this right. You'd rather take your time. Uh, so in our two-year period, year one, I would put it as us being confused, acting pricey perhaps, or being naive uh, because we didn't know what this would mean. Year two is where the heavy lifting of, of you know, financial numbers and you know, legal negotiations took place. So yeah, for people listening, it could, I'm not saying it does, it could take up to two years. Pratik, a lot of people are wondering about selling right now. I mean, either getting approached by private equity groups or getting approached by strategics. And, you know, hopefully after Knockwood, this pandemic is beyond the worst of it. You know, it's been an emotional toll for a lot of business owners. And I think a lot are thinking, okay, maybe now's the time. It sounds like you guys did some heavy soul searching, you and Rashid in particular, but also the two other partners. Help, help people understand how you worked through the decision to sell it took a year what were like what was that journey like for you like what were the conversations how did you come how did you get there to the decision that yes it's time yeah so you know after that first sangria conversation there were a few more uh, i don't think rachit and i were convinced that you know we were acquisition ready but on ted's part on merkel's part i think what was really good was they took it slow, right? So the, the coating was slow. We dated many times. Uh, I think we even started doing partnerships, project partnerships. He said, look, uh, let's work on a few projects. Why don't I get to know your people? Why don't you get to know my people? Let's have joint conversations. That really, really helped. It really helped that Ted, uh, you know, was a, you know, Ted, Ted's a, a sales guy. And so I think he knew that if you could open doors and show us actual deal value, obviously it would be exciting. So that was one. Next is, I think their posturing was great in terms, in terms of, uh, there were a couple of occasions when we had the opportunity to meet the founding team of Merkel. Uh, so David Williams, and their story is fascinating because you know, they kind of grew from zero to a billion dollars when they sold to a, to a Densu over 30 years. And it all started from Baltimore and you know, uh, from a small little team, it kind of grew up. So when we kind of met the founding team, I think they sold us the, entrepreneur dream, the founder story saying, guys, we get this, we've been there. We want to work together to help you accelerate growth. So I think the language, the posturing, that helped. The third was, you know, when we looked at their framework, like I told you earlier, uh, we, Rachit and I, because we come from the tech analytics background, you know, we were always fascinated by the, the Wipros, the Accenture, the KPMG, the Deloitte's, right? And when we saw Merkle, I think we saw a lot of alignment that, hey, you know what, here is something very similar. So that I think that those conversations were like, okay, you know what? We're not saying no, let us kind of think this through. Then two other things, important things happened. We spoke to a few other founders who have had good and bad exits. And I tell you, we've learned a lot from those. I really would like to thank them for, you know, opening their books. And there've been some very, very sour stories of earnout. So like we've what? got, yep, I'll get to that. So I'll get, tell you a couple of sad stories. So one was, you know, Founder A runs a company for 10, 12 years, sells it to a very large network, and but he doesn't negotiate the cost structure post acquisition very well. Uh, and that was a big, big expensive lesson for him because, you know, at the end of the day, if it's an earnout, typically earnout is a function of your profit after tax. So if you don't negotiate cost, a shrewd buyer post acquisition could 
load you up with their cost structure, their expensive offices, you know, their lawyers, their uh, their fancy technology and tools, and suddenly your profit could shrink, and the deal may have no no meaning or value for you. So, for folks listening, negotiating cost structure of your earnout is probably the most important thing. Uh, there's another case where in the case of the, entrepreneur yeah. A. Did he or she walk away with nothing? Did they get some earn out? Did they negotiate some sort of settlement? Do you, do you know any of the details? Yeah. So typically the earn out process, the way it works is your company gets valued at X and you get, again, depends on the deal, anywhere between 30 to 50% of X upfront. And this is another lesson, at least from our perspective, is uh, another entrepreneur B, let's call him B, he said, look, even if you negotiate hard, push for a higher upfront because again, the simple analogy money in hand or money in bank is, you know, obviously, uh, you know, sacrosanct. So, cause you never know what happens after you earn out. So I would typically say, you know, we, you know, negotiate on the overall valuation of course, but negotiate how much you're going to get <clears throat> upfront. And if you can get a decent chunk that takes care of your life, I think you're at a much better place mentally, but thereafter you also got to negotiate a, what's the tenure, of the earnout, typically it can be anywhere between two to five years. Usually, uh, I think three is a sweet spot. Ours is four, and you've got to be very, very clear as to what are the earnout components. What are the multiples? What are the revenue and profit targets? You've got to negotiate as much as possible that you control your own costs. So these carve-outs are critical. So these are just two instances of you know just conversations that were eye-opening. You know, Rachit and I don't come from a financial background. So this was great, great insight. Uh, in hindsight, these are, you know, deal makers or breakers. So we said, you know, given how important this is, we wanted to hire a strong uh, investment bank banker that does deals in our industry. And we were, you know, we went to the market, we scouted three or four. We eventually decided to work with this company, a UK-based company, which has a strong presence in Singapore, Hong Kong called SI Partners. And I tell you, uh, there are three things that they did for us. Uh, and without them, this deal wouldn't have been successful. One is they know what the industry wants at that point in time. So they are very good at shaping the narrative. And I can tell you, as with most things in life, it is so much about brand perception and narrative, right? You hmm. think of a Mercedes versus a Toyota. They're automobiles taking you from A to B. When you and I buy a, for example, if you buy a BMW, very unlikely that we're opening the hood and you know testing the engine, etc. We are there to for the experience, for the narrative, right? Uh, for the prestige. So they were very good at figuring out what buyer A wants versus buyer B versus buyer C, and they would stitch our narrative accordingly. Two, they could take us to market, as you rightly said. There are various kinds of buyer, and we can maybe I'll do the surface level, and we can you know come back to this. We through the process of two years, we met agencies which we eventually settled for. But we met private equity. We met consulting firms. We met, uh, we met individual family-owned businesses. We met high net worth individual businesses who had no interest in digital, but there are other reasons as to why they wanted to buy a company. So point being, if you're really selling, if you're selling a company you've built with your own hard, uh, you know, hard effort, money, and sweat, go to the market. Don't say no first. Just go and figure out what are the different, different, uh, buyers and business models out there, right? So Co that's again a couple things I want to drill yes, in I there. Yeah, a, a couple sure. things I want to drill in uh, there. Um, what was the narrative that SI Partners stitched together for you? I, I guess let me ask you a different question. What was the most surprising way they changed the narrative? Like, how did you and Rashid present the company, and then what did they do to <laughs> make it sound different to an acquirer? Yeah, fun. I think. Two fundamentally different things, right? I think the moment they saw us, I think, like I, I, know I mentioned earlier, we were marketing misfits. So I think the very first thing they said is, look, we are not going to pitch you as an agency. Because the moment I pitch you as an agency, especially to agencies, there is a standard template. Ah, agency revenue X, profit Y, here's a multiple, here's an Excel sheet, let's go, right? But the reality was, if you looked under the hood of Happy Market, there were three business models blended together. There's an agency, a training company, and a consulting firm, as well as here's what really changed the game. We have, as part of our Google partnership, we are a, 
uh, a software reseller company. We resell, we are official resellers of Google Analytics 360. Now, each of these four business models have different multiples. A software reseller has, you know, that's, that's like a SaaS business. The multiples are much higher. We strike a five-year contract, uh, you know, uh, and, the, and the margins are high. So suddenly a SaaS multiple applies. What kind of multiple would you expect on that? Yeah, on that could be anywhere between 10 to 12x, if not higher. 10 to 12 uh, times EBITDA. EBITDA, yeah. If you're on the pure agency side, it could be as low as three to four, depending on, you know, what's out there in the market. Training helps. Training, because the cash flow is very good, because training is one of those business models where, just like in school, you're expected to pay before you enter class, right? In agency, you're struggling to, chase your clients for 30, 60, 90 days even, right? So when we blended it, <coughs> we kind of figured that there's a good narrative for maybe, you know, uh, a 7X of EBITDA, for example, right? What, so, sorry, what I would think, a typical training company trade at? Uh, probably around that, you know, 7, 8, 7, 8X. Got it. If you, if you're, so, uh, yeah. So the execution stuff, the, the kind of commoditized stuff, 3 to 4, the software 10 to 12, the training 7 to 8. So you're thinking blended, Maybe seven X is, is a realistic yeah. seven times EBITDA is a realistic expectation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, so what happened was, you know, the, the benefit of having that two year stretch a was philosophically, we, we were fine to walk away and we have walked away from many deals. B it gave us time to organically grow our revenue in the narrative, in the direction of the narrative that SI partners advised us. They said, guys, look in the market right now, there are very few resellers. There are very few training businesses. So can we skew your business in the coming year in that direction, right? So we also use that time to kind of uh, shape our business more and more towards the narrative of the sale. I really want to just press pause and underline what you just said, because I think a lot of business owners, when they're approached by an advisor, whether it's an M&A professional or a we call them certified value builders, regardless, advisors, they kind of give them the Heisman and say, you know what, I don't want to talk now. I'm not ready to sell is the classic rebuttal, right? Yeah. And what yep. you did is you sat with SI partners early. They coached you on what the different multiples are, how to position your business to increase the multiple, what was going to be more attractive to acquirers and less. I mean, that coaching sounds like it was incredibly valuable. Spot on. And I'll tell you, you, you're very right to say that, you know, when advisors approach you, in fact, many of them typically only work on a success fee. What I liked about SI Partners in hindsight is uh, it was a blended structure. We had a flat fee and a, you know, a percentage of the overall deal. The reason that's beneficial is because automatically that's an alignment with the principle that you don't have to sell. And I can't tell you and I can't emphasize enough. So there are two people, uh, Sam and Hattie from uh, SI Partners. After every meeting, they would categorically remind us, Rachit, Pranthik, remember, you don't have to sell. Now, they wouldn't have been able to do that if it was a pure success fee. It's a very small thing, but it went miles because it just strengthened our confidence during negotiation. Because remember, in the negotiation, very likely, it's a David Goliath situation and the agency, the seller is a small person. And I can tell you in many, many cases, in many conversations that we've had in the market, companies you know, who buy regularly, it's their job to strike a good deal and to squeeze. You know, your buying side, sure. just like the way you're buying a house, you're always trying to negotiate, right? They're doing their job. But on the selling side, you've got to know your narrative. You've got to be confident. You've got to be okay to walk away or buy time because that's your strength. And that only comes if you have partnerships that are structured and aligned that way. So uh, to everyone listening, you know, I would say being open to advisors because they know the market, you know, of course, you've got to be confident that they're the right guys. It really helps because at the end, Rachit and I told ourselves that if, even if we didn't sell, we were happy paying the retainer because they really opened our eyes. They coached us. They changed the way our, you know, our narrative looked. Uh, so yeah, absolutely. Now, I think I'm curious about something because Ted had kind of romanced you guys, the sangria's flowing, he's a sales guy. And then all of a sudden you rock up and say, okay, we've engaged SI partners. What was Ted's reaction like to this? Now they, now he's got to negotiate with, with these professionals. Suddenly, you know, yeah, he's not, no, he doesn't like have said, so much access to you anymore. 
no so i think what we did was you know we we've always enjoyed speaking and talking with him and that's the beauty of ted he's genuinely uh you know he he is very very founder friendly right and he's a great salesman so that combination he knows that look uh if you really want to get this done we've got to let the founders and happy marketer happy marketer guys be comfortable let them follow their process so we we still continued you know working on projects meeting for sangrias and drinks uh all we said is look uh if you're going down this route we will go through a professional we will meet a few buyers in fact you know ted comes uh from the tech world from oracle accenture etc so he said look if i were you i would do the same so he was he's a very very empathetic person so he said look guys do this only if it makes sense go and speak to other buyers and you know that's the irony of that sort of dating is you know you kind of get drawn to it when the other person is not kind of you know pushing you too hard so uh i i thought the relationship with ted i think it's a huge part of why the deal happened uh and i think we took it nice and slow nice and easy we kept the conversation open he let us do our thing uh yeah how many offers did you end up getting like formal letters of intent so you know the way it works is uh to in most cases at least in our case is we could go to the market we could field offers but once we signed an loi a letter of uh, intent that's exclusive right so we wanted to ensure that before we signed an loi eventually of obviously with densu and merkel uh because you know each process it's it's a it's a it's a tedious long drawn due diligence process uh, and like i was sharing with you earlier there's a huge emotional baggage because you're running a business by day and you got to do all of this by evening or night so we said look we don't want to we don't want to flirt with too many partners but before that we want to at least meet so we met maybe i don't know about 10 odd uh serious potential buyers we kind of got a sense of you know are they interested not interested uh and if so what the business model of the multiple is going to be like to be honest there were a couple of family owned businesses from indonesia china who probably had a much cleaner and larger deal structure so there were two entities who wanted to buy us up front uh at uh you know 2x of the offer that we finally had uh you know from uh from denso and uh, but there was no earn out so it's it's pretty interesting so we were like wow uh here we have an offer where someone's willing to give us more money someone doesn't want us to have an earn out why are we not saying yes right away it just doesn't sound intuitive so we again uh, rachit and i sought for advice from some very senior vcs and pe firms saying guys you do this for a living what's the catch like So yeah I mean I remember one of us senior VC friend saying guys look if it's purely about math even a great five student can tell you that go with the offer that gives you more money but he said guys ask yourself why are you doing this ask yourself what's the narrative or intent so he said look typically in those deals they would buy it and they the reason they are buying it is because they want to buy uh, for two reasons and those buyers were very candid they said look some buyer said look by doing this it allows us put in wealth into singapore which is going to give us singapore you know a singapore uh, equivalent of a green card or a citizenship right so they were doing for personal reasons the wealthy families they just wanted access to singapore and some other people were doing it to kind of create a amalgamation of companies a package and then list it on the market right so they were not really interested in helping us grow the business or you know in our, what we have built they were just doing it for pure commercial reasons and nothing wrong because they were willing to pay a very good price for it but what the advice for us was that look you guys are young chances are you might want to start you know you might have another one or two businesses in you uh, in the next 30 years you want to have a good story you want to have a good exit story you also want to do right by your people there are 60 people who have given their lives to you because if you sell to the larger you know the the parties who are going to give you more money they'll shut the business on day one all 55 lose their jobs right do you want that narrative so we thought very hard and we felt you know that's true uh, yes we can make more money there up front but i think there is a responsibility there's a story that you want to build here and through the earn out process we do still have the opportunity to make it to that 2x valuation eventually so we said you know what time is in our hand we'll choose the the path of the earn out so we fielded 10 odd offers three different kinds of business model but eventually uh, we felt uh, you know very comfortable with the densu merkel offer again they were very very uh they have been very very thorough and professional uh in the way they have gone about the business
And so what, what was their uh, structure? Like what was the multiple they were offering and, and how much of it upfront versus earn out that kind of stuff? Yeah. So like I said, you know, in, in our case, eventually the blended seven X of EBITDA kind of worked out and, uh, and the typical deal for us was, you know, we get about a 40, 45% upfront and the rest is obviously variable. It's a function of a four year earn out. It's a multiple, uh, you know, it's, it's a pat multiple. And so I guess the good thing is we kind of had visibility of the formula upfront. Obviously the destiny is, in our as well as in Densu Merkel's hands, because you know it's a joint business plan post or not. It's not just happy marketer, but it's a collective effort. Uh, but at least you know we knew what we were getting into. We know the formula, and you know we've literally earned what we saw, sort of thing. So, did you say? I, I just want to make sure I understood. Did you say packed multiple? Uh, PAT, PAT, profit after oh. tax. <clears throat> profit after tax. Okay, that's helpful. Got it. Got it. And again, this is not sacrosanct, right? There are different models we have seen in the market, which could be revenue-based, which could be uh, profit before tax. Because again, you know, the tax jurisdiction matters a lot because Singapore is a low tax juris- jurisdiction, right? But if you're in a high tax, maybe, you know, in the US or India, et cetera, you may want to negotiate otherwise. And that's mm-hmm. again where it's critical. And these are details where you need advice. So apart from SI partners, we had, uh, you know, we had an accounting firm that helped us on the, tax accounting side. We had a very, very good law firm. Something, again, I would recommend all our listeners to consider. You know, we, we, we finally got a law firm, uh, which is a very big name in the US. They're a large law firm. We're lucky to have a friend there who helped us strike a deal, which was part retainer, because most law firms only work in a retainer. But we were lucky to get a part retainer, part success fee. But again, I can't stress the importance of that because a lesson learned was Beyond a point, all the legal negotiations were not legalese, but literally posturing that, you know what, it's my word. It's, this is how we do it. Take it or leave it. So you've got to be able to have a law firm that, can, that has a good standing, that has a good perception, that can hold its ground and ideally, hopefully, precedence uh, based on experience. Uh, and, you know, I can go into, if you're interested, go into a couple of clauses. Which, yeah, go uh, ahead. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, a couple of clauses that took a long time was, you know, you want to negotiate very clearly and very hard on non-competes because the buyer would typically say that, hey, guys, you've sold your business. Now, ideally, for the rest of your lives, you're not going to be doing an agency, right? Uh, now, again, now that's the extreme case. Most companies won't do it because the law of your country most likely will say that you can't, you can't prevent someone from earning his or her bread or butter. Uh, but they would probably put a, you know, a large... 10 years saying for the next three, five, 10 years, you can't do something, right? So again, thanks to our lawyers, we, we kind of created some carve out saying, okay, you know what, so at least for us, we can't be doing an agency selling the same stuff in the same markets that we operate in. So which means tomorrow, if you want to start an agency in Canada, we are fine because you know Canada is not very operated or at least currently operated. Uh, the other also is uh, in terms of uh, good exits and bad exits, because typically, uh, you know, when you sell, in most cases, the company may reserve the right to ask you to leave the very next day, right? Uh, which is fine. Obviously, you, be- you become an employee, but you may want to carve something out saying, you know what, uh, I'm quite critical to the business. So maybe I need at least a minimum one year period. Otherwise, you know, even you as a buyer may not really benefit, right? Uh, because we are a services business. So you may want to negotiate that. You may want to negotiate a two-way fair exit, meaning, look, as much as you can fire me or ask me to leave, I may also reserve the right to leave the organization. And there, there are two specific carve-outs you can negotiate, good and bad exits, which means that, for example, if I'm charged criminally, if I'm, you know, uh, if I'm kind of convicted, that's obviously a bad exit, which means I suddenly lose all my rights to an honor, right? It's all gone. Uh, but if it's a good exit, which means, you know what, I've done my handover, I'm just moving countries or I'm leaving, that's fine. Uh, so as long as someone else is running the business uh, professionally, I, as the shareholder, uh, should reserve the right to the earnout, right? So I think these are small nuances which could take two, three months to negotiate. But I would say, you know, stand by your principle, stand what makes logical sense because once you sign the line, once you sell, you know, the deal's done, right? You can't really go back. The other thing, for example, you may want to negotiate very hard is 
the upfront amount, it can't be clawed back. Once paid, it's paid, right? I've seen a couple of cases where that wasn't the case and that, you know, the the, the founder of the company they, unfortunately went into litigation because the company wanted to claw it back for whatever reason, right? Uh, so I think these are things that you want to get that in writing upfront and hence this takes time and hence this takes a good law firm because they need to have this experience, this precedence to be able to negotiate on your behalf. I've heard it in North America. I'm not sure if it's the same in Singapore, but lawyers refer to market. Well, that clause is not market. And that's what I think you're referring to is someone with enough experience to be able to kind of push back and say, that's, you know, like a 25 year non-compete is not market. Like that's, that's not, you know, that's no, not. Uh, sp- absolutely spot on. I mean, you know, we used to joke with our lawyer friend that, uh, so, you know, we're, we're literally in the boardroom negotiating, but when the legal terms come, Rachid and I are just sitting, you know, like a, like an observer, like an audience, seeing the lawyers kind of fight it out. And over lunch, when we take a time break, I'm like, uh, Mr. Lawyer, this doesn't seem legalese. This seems too, I mean, I'm just joking, the two teenagers fighting over, you know, uh, what they want. And as you rightly said, it literally, eventually, when all legalese fails, it came down to, hey, this is not market practice. But then the other one would say, hey, by the way, this is not what I see. And it's literally at the end, who would blink first, right? So uh, yeah, spot on. So having that gravitas, that experience, even their brand name, and you know, I'll tell you something very small and to founders here who I'm sure are very experienced is it was really, really not about the legalese as much as about that posturing because, you know, I, because the other side, the bigger boys, they obviously have big, large global law firms. If they don't see a law firm on the other side, which is of the similar caliber or pedigree, you know, you probably lost the battle before the battle begins, right? So yes, it's, it's not easy because you may have to pay top dollars. But I think if you're going down this path, you rather get good advice, folks with good precedence and experience and, you know, and the ability to kind of negotiate what market is because uh, we've seen it make a huge difference. You know, we, we've probably taken four extra months to negotiate this, but uh, we were finally very happy with, with, uh, with the way the contract panned out. Yeah, sounds like it. How did this, how, what was the emotional experience for you? You guys had been friends for a long time uh, and business partners and, and friends in life as well. You'd sold your business for a lot of money, but a four-year earnout, so you're still sort of connected to the business and had a number to hit. What, what was the emotional side of selling like for you? Uh, a roller coaster is the right word. Very draining is the other right word. So, you know, it took two years. And in those two years, like I said, Rachid and I would need to grow the business, manage people, manage clients, manage revenue, the usual stuff that every founder has to do during the day. And then every evening or every few evenings, we would sit together and say, okay, where are we? Do we really want to sell? So do we, we would literally start the conversation asking ourselves, are we ready? Are you really sure? Uh, and Rachid has this very good habit of kind of, you know, even if I had said, yes, let's sell the last night, he would say, hey, let's sleep over it, right? You never know. Uh, so we would literally start from ground zero and kind of question our beliefs, our decisions. Uh, and it's hard because, you know, you would get emails uh, from the accountant saying, guys, I find this mistake in your due diligence. You know what? The valuation doesn't look that good. Or a buyer would come and say, nah, you know what? You're not, I don't think you guys are good enough. Uh, you know, posturing, actual stuff. So it's very draining because it does hurt your ego. Uh, that, you know what, I think we're doing good, but you have to grapple with so many things that you don't know about. So you've got to be prepared professionally to have these open-hearted conversations with your business partner. Because by the way, there could be a phase when one party says, no, I'm not ready. The other party says, no, I want to sell, right? Uh, Did that happen so to you? I think in our 12-year journey, uh, we've actually had one major instance where, in fact, uh, since you're from Canada, so our or one of our original uh, partners, uh, David, he's uh, a Canadian Chinese. He at some point wanted to exit the business. And that was a very hard, it was just four years into our business. Uh, we knew little, but we ha- learned the hard way that equity once given, it's a very difficult thing to part with because how do you decide what's value, valuation? How do you kind of, once you agree, even if you do agree, how do you figure out cash? So we had a very difficult time in 2013, 2014 when we had to part ways because a, it's emotionally difficult to part ways with a friend, you know, who's a business partner. B, to figure out the cash and the valuation. So yes, we had gone through that. 
uh, earlier in the decade. How did, how did you but do even, with David? Yeah, so it was uh, it was tough. So I think you know uh, once we came to an agreement that it's going to be that he is going to exit the business, the next step was okay. What are the terms? Uh, and we were you know young and naive. So literally, we went to Google.com. We read twenty articles. Obviously, the the selling side had a lower valuation. The buying side had a higher valuation. But the funny thing is, when we reached a compromise, and now when we look back, it's funny. Back then, the valuation that we finally agreed on is very not too far away from the final valuation of our deal. So we, at least in hindsight, we we now feel that we had a fair deal. Uh, but what was tough was paying him back, right? Because obviously he had <coughs> we had a fair value agreement, but we didn't have the cash flow. But we agreed on a time period. Uh, of you know X months that we're going to pay you every month. Uh, we were just lucky that luckily our business grew. We had cash, but it was a struggle because we hardly took any money back. Rachit and I after paying staff and after paying uh, David. Uh, so yeah, you've got to go through that. I suppose many founders go through that. Uh, I guess the only caveat there to anyone listening is negotiate equity. Uh, you know, in a prudent manner. In a you know, don't be too. Uh, haste in kind of parting way with equity because it's once you you know lock in it's hard right now fast forward to the time when we're discussing the sale uh, there have been many occasions where rachit wanted to sell i didn't want to sell or vice versa and i'll add i'll add some more complexity to this is once rachit and i are ready to sell what people have to factor in is your family and friends so you know when we sp- spoke to our respective spouses and parents I don't. It was a mixed bag. Uh, like my parents and even Rachid's parents, they were like, so you know, for them, it's a you know, for people in our generation, the word exit has a positive connotation. But to our parents' generation, or I remember even Rachid's grandmom who lives in Singapore, it's the emotion was as though we were shutting a physical shop. So in Hindi, she would be like, "Wait, you're you're closing the shop." Like it sounded like a, the analogy was rather sad. Like, wow, what's happened to my grandson? Are things not going well? So we had to paint a positive picture that no, you know what, an exit or a sale actually means money. So there's a grandma analogy. Then the parent analogy is wait, kids, what are you going to do after selling? Like you guys going to sit home? That's not fine. In most Indian households, and I'm sure in other households, sitting idle is never an answer. It doesn't matter how much money you make. So we had to go through that parental discussion, saying, no, guys, look, we'll sell. We have an earnout, so at least for four years we'll work. And by the way, I'm not saying we're going to sit idle at home. You know, we'll do something. We'll figure out a next startup, maybe. So it's those emotionally. So suddenly, if you add, it's not Rajit and me. There are eight other people in the equation: spouses, parents, in-laws, uh, grandparents. And you're like, "Wow, geez, this is <laughs> this is not what I signed up for." But I mean, eventually, when people, <clears throat> you know, came around, they understood why. So I think we always went to, you know, Simon Sinek's first principle of start with the why. So we wanted mm-hmm. to tell them that look, this liquidation event. A, there is liquidity, you know, somewhere in our 30s. It will help us from a cash flow. Also, I think it will help us accelerate our business. It will help our staff. Uh, so I think when we started with the first principles of why and the objective of this, uh, more than the mechanics, I think uh, it kind of became a bit easier. But I mean, if I, to anyone who's looking down, going down this path, uh, you know, expect anywhere between six to 24 months of uh of of late nights of just emotional uh, conflict internally as well as externally it's not it's not a rosy or rosy time uh, till you actually cross that line in fact there's another anecdote i'll leave you with a close friend of ours you know he was at the finishing line on his way in his car to the hotel to sign the deal but here's what happened the buyer and i presume this is a common place for shrewd buyers the buyer calls and says by the way the deals off the table and the friend tells us that he's never, he said, I've only cried twice in my life. One when, you know, there was a bereavement in the family. The other, when this happened, because, you know, when you're all set, you're probably, you know, in excitement, booked a holiday, bought a house, but the buyer knows this. So again, as the saying goes, till the cash hits the bank, please don't celebrate. Uh, the deal is not done. Because what the buyer did, the buyer called back to us later because he knew the founder would be emotionally crushed. The buyer said, oh, by the way, you know what, we can do the deal, but at half the value. But I'm glad my friend, yeah, it, you know, it's so unfair. Half it's so value. unfair. Half the value, right? You've given two years to negotiate. You've come to an agreement of X. One hour before the party, you're ready to pop the champagne. 
they say half the value. I'm so glad my friend didn't sell at that point in time. He continued growing the business. Eventually, he you know he sold it at a much higher value to a much better buyer. Uh, but yeah, all I'm going to say is till the deal is done. Till in fact, in our case, just a funny anecdote. When we signed, all was good. We are celebrating, but because of a bank glitch, the money took an extra couple of hours to hit. But you know, in those two hours, your heart is pounding. You're like. I know I've signed it. I know the other side has shown us the receipt that you know they have done their bit. But sometimes you know banks take time, right, uh, to kind of clear the transaction. But yeah, please celebrate only once the money is in your bank account. How did you know the money was in your bank? Were you refreshing like a mobile bank app or? Yes. Refresh. Refresh. Uh, refresh. Refresh. Fanatically. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. I would be lying if we didn't do so. Like every Rachid's doing it. I'm doing it. Like buddy, what's happening? Where's this? Because normally, you know you would get an SMS saying, you know, money is in your bank. And they're like, oh. So we actually obviously have a screenshot of that SMS and, you know, of that notification that, okay, money's in the bank. Let's go drink. Uh, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> till the money's in the bank, your heart's pounding that, what have I done? <laughs> oh, man. I'm so grateful for you sharing in such candor and detail because this is going to help a lot of entrepreneurs, in particular service companies that, uh, where oftentimes there's an earnout component, and you've just shared an enormous amount of uh, of really great tips for folks. So I, I'm really grateful for you doing that. Uh, where can people reach you? Listeners wanted to reach out. Do you want to send people to a website, or what's the best way for folks to say hi and thank you personally? No, firstly, I want to say thank you, John A, for running this podcast. I think you know. I, I wish, in hindsight, even you know. Before our uh, deal, we had access to this resource because you know it's only through these sort of conversations, and uh, you know I only had privy to three or four personal friends. But you know many many people may not be willing to share. But I think this is how the industry or the market, you know, we got to uh, build confidence and capability on the sell side as well. Uh, and I so agree. thank you for doing this, and thanks for everyone who's listening. And you know, happy to have detailed chats. Uh, best way for anyone to reach me is on LinkedIn. So if you search my name, which I'm sure might be on the podcast as well, Prantik Mazumdar on LinkedIn, just drop me an invite or a note. Uh, and yeah, we can carry on the conversation from there. Really happy to kind of, you know, deep dive and discuss specifics. And all I'll sell, tell anyone at the end is really, you're, you're building this, you know, with so much hard effort, blood, time, et cetera. Be acquisition ready. Tell yourself after every meeting that you're not, you don't have to sell. There are tons of, different business models. You know, in the US or in the Western world, I see sites like Micro Acquire, if I'm not wrong, which are platforms that help you sell. There are advisors that you should reach out to. There are different kinds of private equity, nowadays PACs, right? Different models uh, emerging. So please entertain all sorts of options before signing on to the one that, uh, you know, you kind of feel comfortable with and fight for your upfront as much as possible and negotiate the legal contract as uh, you know, as well as you can, because uh, this is once in a lifetime of an opportunity. Well said, and we'll put uh, your name because it's it's got a unique spelling. So we'll we'll put that in the show notes, which will be at builttosell.com. Prantik, it was awesome. So thank you for doing this. Thank you, John. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, and wish you all the very best. Hey, if you like today's episode, you're gonna love my new book, The Art of Selling Your Business. The book was inspired by the cohort of my guests over the years who have been able to negotiate an exit far better than the benchmark in their industry, sometimes two or three times more than I would have expected. I was curious to understand the tactics and strategies of these entrepreneurs and what they do differently from average performers. The result is a playbook for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. To learn more, go to builttosell.com selling where we put together a collection of gifts for listeners who order the book. Just go to builttosell.com slash selling. Built to Sell Radio is produced by Haley Parkhill. Our audio and video engineer is Dennis Labataglia. If you like what you've just heard, subscribe to get a new episode delivered to your inbox each week. Just go to builttosell.com. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. 
John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at Facebook.com slash Built to Sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.